Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our pals at DraftKings. Download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code GOODSEATS to get a free shot at a share of $100,000 in total prizes with the DraftKings tournament seeding pool. That's promo code GOODSEATS to get a free shot at $100,000 in prizes only on the DraftKings app. Download it now. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Now, here's our show. The Eagles celebrated their victory with a game ball for team owner Leonard Toes. And while they savored the win, the fans outside issued a championship challenge. We want Dallas! Dallas, we hate you. Dallas, right here at the vent. At the vent. The fans would get their wish. The Cowboys, so long the Eagles' nemesis, would try one more time to deny Philadelphia their championship dreams. Years back, when we were struggling to win five and six and seven games, a lot of people used to take the Eagles for granted. A lot of guys have heard me say, Never allow anybody to take you for granted. I have a feeling that the Cowboys are sort of taking us for granted right now. We're here because we've earned the right to be here, and we've played well enough to be here. And we can beat this football team. If the Dallas Cowboys are going to take us for granted, we'll whip their ass. Dallas faced not only the Eagles, but an entire city, a city united. Against odds like that, the Cowboys never had a chance. Philadelphia's Doc Wallopers punched holes in the Cowboys' sophisticated offense. It was like a wrecking ball loose in the loop. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello again, sports fans. It's Tim Hanlon reporting to you live, well, sort of live on the interwebs and the podcasting uh, technology that uh, wends our way from our little studio to your little ears. Thanks for finding us. It's Good Seats still available. Yes, the curious little podcast that is extraordinarily focused for whatever reasons on what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. And uh, the dulcet tones of one voice of God, John Facenda. Sets the tone for us this week as we go to back to Philadelphia, one of our favorite cities, the city of brotherly love. As we uh, uh, interestingly get into uh, a wistful remembrance of a uh, beloved stadium known as Veterans Stadium. Yes, the home of the Philadelphia Eagles for a long time, certainly the Philadelphia Phillies for a long time. Uh, and that clip from a... Uh, a wonderful time in Philadelphia Eagles history, 1980 to be exact. January 11th it was. Sorry, January 11th, 1981, the 1980 regular season. January 11th, 1981, at the Vet, uh, where the Philadelphia Eagles vanquished uh, their longtime nemesis, the Dallas Cowboys, to ascend to the uh, the title game, the Super Bowl, 
uh, Super Bowl 15 in uh, in Louisiana, in New Orleans, uh, two weeks uh, afterwards. They lost, of course, to the Oakland Raiders that uh, that day. But the fact that they won the NFC Championship against the team that had uh, constantly uh, been in their way, the Dallas Cowboys, it was a, a moment to remember for that 1980-1981 season. Uh, it, at the vet, and uh, it, it just uh, an example, frankly, of how uh, the city of Philadelphia just loved that stadium. And we get into a, a fascinating conversation this week uh, with a guy who, uh, in many respects, lived a dream. If you were a Philadelphia sports fan, actually lived not only the dream, but in the stadium itself for almost three years. Yes, The Secret Apartment. That's the name of the book, the memoir. From our guest this week, Tom Garvey, who uh, lived literally in an apartment that he sort of uh, fashioned for himself. And we'll get into this fascinating and, and just all in out uh, intriguing story of how this even happened uh, from uh, the, uh, I guess it was sort of the middle of uh, 1979 through the end of 1981. And Tom Garvey, as we'll find out, uh, got to live this sort of uh, Philadelphia sports fans dream uh, with the secret apartment. It's a fascinating tale. Uh, it's uh, I, I guess you could sort of uh, set it up uh, this way, as uh, I, I do from uh, the setup from his book. If I overheard, and this is quote unquote, if I overheard anyone telling the story at a bar or a party, I wouldn't believe it either. But I must confess, I'd probably scooch a little closer, eavesdropping, unable to walk away. I'd have to find out how this yarn unraveled. Let's begin with an implausible story with a seemingly simple yet complex question. If you were single, never married, with no children or dependents, would you, if you had the opportunity, have lived, quote, on the down low in a secret apartment in Veterans Stadium? In this proposal, we have an off-the-wall South Philly version of the Phantom of the Opera, but the larger notion of this question begs uh, this question begs, excuse me, could easily challenge the inner demons of sports fans anywhere. If you had an opportunity to live in a major sports stadium of a team you grew up loving, would you have done it? In my case, I could. So I did. And so begins, frankly, the story of Tom Garvey living on the ground level of veteran stadium beneath the slope of uh, what was then the 300 level seats in left field from, let's see, specifically October 2nd, 1979. There you go. I got the date correct. October 2nd, 1979 until the last days of 1981. His apartment was on the 200 level concourse uh, of what uh, originally had been intended to be a novelty stand in the stadium. And it, it goes on. It's a fascinating uh, a story about how uh, a Vietnam vet uh, who uh, was a worker uh, and overseeing a, a very lucrative uh, parking concession uh, through the auspices of his uh, cousin, who had the um, the uh, uh, the contract to do that for for years in the in the mid to late seventies and onward at the vet, uh, a crown jewel of Philadelphia sports at the time. Uh, and for those of you uh, uh, who sort of don't remember or kind of not from the Philadelphia area, the, the vet was next door to the Spectrum which for a period of time was next to the old JFK Stadium. It was all sort of compact there in, I guess you could call it sort of a sports district or complex now uh, where the uh, Phillies uh, Citizens uh, Bank uh, ballpark now resides and the Lincoln Financial Field uh, resides. 
uh, it's still sort of compact. It's sort of a, a unique sort of a, a sports uh, a destination there. And uh, and Tom gets into a fascinating tale of not only living at the vet, but frankly, uh, kind of having his run almost like as the mini mayor, if you will, of this entire sports complex, right? Running the parking stuff, uh, not only for the vet, but uh, uh, the old Spectrum and uh, for a time, the old JFK Stadium. Uh, it's just a fascinating tale. And uh, you wonder uh, what it was like. Was it cold? Was it hot? Was it, uh, you know, uh, and there's all kinds of amazing tales. So the, the folks that he hung out with, uh, the Eagles, various team members as we get into uh, the Phillies, certainly even we uh, dust off a little memory or two of the Philadelphia Fury that inhabited the vet uh, at that time, as did Temple football, University of T- uh, Temple University football, uh, and certainly a bevy of, uh, of big concerts and other major events. Uh, Tom uh, recounts it all, uh, not in this conversation. We kind of just uh, highlight some of the few of them, uh, a few of them, but um, we uh, uh, encourage you to check out the book uh, from which all of this uh, these memories come from. And again, uh, that book is called The Secret Apartment. Uh, and uh, we get into all of that uh, fun and frivolity as we remember uh, lovingly uh, Veteran Stadium in Philadelphia with our guest this week, Tom Garvey, who lived there for a couple of years, for God's sake, uh, in our conversation coming up in just a couple of moments time. Uh, a couple of quick promotional items. Uh, let's try to keep it themed like we try to do uh, every week. Here on the show, when we uh, have a topic that uh, is worthwhile and has some some commerce uh, components to it, how about 417 Helmets? Yes, 417helmets.com, 417helmets.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. It's our pal Judd Lasher uh, down in Missouri. Uh, it's collectible helmets and more, but uh, look, frankly, you don't need to go any further than the Philadelphia Eagles mini helmet. It's gorgeous. It's uh, uh, the the uh, the proper color and the logo and the... Uh, the decal and it's just it's great it's one of literally hundreds of mini football helmets that uh span all kinds of leagues not just the nfl but lots of forgotten leagues too uh, that we love to remember the wfl and the uh, the world league of american football and on and on and on it's 417helmets.com promo code good seats for 10 percent off all of your purchases maybe it's that eagles mini helmet or one of the the dozens and dozens of other ones uh, to check out there at 417helmets.com. And of course, also our pals at oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code there is good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. That's our pal uh, P.F. Wilson and his uh, his pals there. And uh, amongst all the great uh, shirt uh, memories that you can find for dozens of cities and leagues and teams, uh, just check out the Philadelphia tab, of course, and lots of great memories from Philadelphia uh, sports and pop culture uh, in the past to remember. And of course, in particular, the uh, beautifully uh, light sort of Kelly Green Vet 700 level stadium t-shirt. Uh, it's gorgeous. It's really cool, uh, attractively priced. And it's just one of the uh, many, many uh, different Philadelphia sports memories that you can find uh, on the Philadelphia tab at oldschoolshirts.com. Promo code there, good seats for 10% off all of your purchases when you visit there early and often. So uh, our thanks to 417helmets.com, promo code uh, GOODSEATS, and oldschoolshirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS. 10% off your purchases at both of those places. Thank you guys for your uh, sponsorship of the show, and thank you everybody for uh, continuing to listen as we get into a just a, 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 an amazingly interesting conversation uh, with our new pal Tom Garvey as we talk about the secret apartment 
that he lived in at uh, the old Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. Let's go back to Philly, shall we? Please, as always, enjoy. This show, this little podcast is um, is uniquely and oddly, I think, focused on uh, things that uh, are not around anymore in, in the realm of pro sports. And a lot of that tends to be around teams and leagues, for sure. You know, uh, the World Hockey Association, for example. Uh, but also, you know, all the things around it and, and stadiums, for sure, are all part of that. And I, you know, I must tell you, I stumbled across... Uh, your book, and and I had to scratch my head, and I'm sure yes. I'm not the first. The, I'm sure I'm not the first one. Uh, I just, you know, I had to do quadruple takes to kind of just see if this was uh, for real, what this was all about, and I'm just I was endlessly fascinated, and and I I, I would imagine our audience would be as well. Um, this is just a, 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 a I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this is a just a an amazingly interesting story. Um, so let's start maybe a little bit sort of from the uh, the beginning. Why don't you give our audience a little bit of background about who you are? And I, I'm really in particular interested in starting kind of how Veterans Stadium in, in, in beautiful Philadelphia comes into your life in the earliest of days, because we'll maybe get into sort of how that leads into where the story goes. Why the vet? Well, um, the vet was... It didn't start out this way, but the vet turned out to be a place of healing for me. And it was a place where I spent a lot of time alone and I did a lot of introspection and I weighed a lot of things and I meditated a lot, exercised. And it, it, uh, it was there for me. I thought it was un- unusual because I was a vet and I had, come home from Vietnam in 1969, January of 69. And like many vets, I was hyper busy. Within a week of being home, I had a full-time job from the 3 to 11 shift in Center City. And I was a full-time student back at college. I had left college with 39 credit hours. So I was going back to get my degree. And I was working and and going to school full-time. And I was so busy, I didn't have time to process anything. Uh, back then, I don't know if it's different now, but one week I was in a border camp, uh, special forces border camp on the Cambodian border. That was really a dicey place. And eight days later I was working and back in college and there's no, you know, there's no detoxification or, you know, defusing the situation. But for several years, I was so busy. I, I was a I was on the dean's list. I eventually graduated with honors, and then I took a couple of regular jobs. But that was kind of boring, and I had more time to think. And uh, as I put it, the wheels kind of came off my wagon in the mid mid seventies. Uh, I quit my job and I went to Cape Cod to write a book about Vietnam. And uh, when I came back from that, I didn't have regular work, and I started taking little odd jobs rather than any kind of type of career path. And I ended up working in the parking lot at vet stadium because a cousin was running the lot at the time. And I had relatives working inside the stadium, running the concessions. Uh, and one thing led to another and my cousin wanted out and they, they, they came to me and I was surprised when they offered it to me, but 
it wasn't a high paying job, but it was, you know, it was steady. And, uh, then I ended up living there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, I know it's an amazing story and I know it's hard to believe, but, uh, it, uh, it kind of, it brought me home in some ways and it, it prepared me for the next part of my life. It's, I, I love the vet. Uh, I saw someone write something recently about how their memories of the vet were all about um, rats and urine and things like that, but that wasn't my experience. Uh, to me, to sit atop that building that would have 60-some thousand ravenous fans on a Sunday and be up there a couple nights later when the place was just no lights on at the top of the vet, sit there and think uh, or rollerblade around the vet. I don't know how well your listeners would know the stadium, but it's referred to as an eight-sided oval. The vets, the vet was un, unusual in many stadiums of its sort size because you could you could circle the entire vet on the 600 level and be looking at the city of Philadelphia as though you were atop a, about a 10-story building. And across South Philly, all the buildings were two or three stories high. So until that that outcropping in Center City where you had the high rises, uh, you you could look at the whole city. And I to be up there at night on roller skates or on a 10 speed bike all alone in the building. It was, it was magnificent. It was, it really helped me. It, uh, it, it moved me along at a time when I, I didn't see myself as a victim or, or damaged in any way, but, but I had issues I wasn't dealing with. And the vet was a very healing place for me. It right, was lots, yeah. Lots, lots, lots to unpack. Lots so, so, so let me, let me get into yeah. So let's uh, let, let's let's go even before the the vet thing because that, that that's obviously the the entry point here. But um, I, I'm sure it's lost on a generation or two, frankly, of our listeners about uh, what it was like to come back to the United States, circa '69, '70, just the early '70s, generally, uh, with a war that obviously was becoming increasingly, if it wasn't already. Uh, uh, you know, depending on where you were politically and, and geographically in this country, uh, deeply and becoming more so unpopular. Um, yes, I, I'm. I'm yes. assuming that some of some of your and great busyness I get, but I'm I'm assuming some of that feeling you were sort of experiencing, maybe even unwittingly by people or specifically by people with misdirected uh, angst, anger. Uh, dissatisfaction and that kind of stuff, because you were part of a physical, supposedly representation, if you will, of an unpopular war. Was that part of the mix too? It was part of the mix. And and part of the mix was, I guess it's safe to say I was involved in extreme things over there. I mean, the experience of special forces was different than uh, the experience that a lot of guys had that went over there because we were in small teams and very isolated outposts. And there were only, a 12 man and a team only had 12 guys. If you were full strength and we were never at full strength, we always had eight or nine guys, maybe 10. We were always short a medic or a combo man, which created other problems because they couldn't leave camp and go on operation. So that cut down the number of people that could go out in the field. So we went out more often that way. And uh, we were two Americans going out on the border with a bunch of these mountain yards the mountain people that we lived with uh, 
and they were basically mercenaries. I mean, they weren't in the army of Vietnam. They weren't even Vietnamese. And uh, they were very mystical. And to come back from that experience to a, to a world that was hostile to all that, I didn't even try to defend it. I just, you know, I just wanted to blend in and go back to school and have a job and get my own apartment and move on with my life. It was. Yeah. And, and that's, that's an interesting point too, because what I don't hear in that, I hear your desire to uh, quickly, and, and I can imagine with excitement, uh, reassimilate, if you will, get back, get, get back to the quote unquote regular life and, and pick up where you last left off. But what I don't hear in that, and maybe I'm just fishing around here is uh, support, right? I, I, I'm, I'm, cu- I'm curious as to how much you were support, being supported or seeking support from others like you coming back and having gone through these intense experiences or, or was it sort of the last thing on your mind because you were truly focused on going forward, uh, uh, assimilating, uh, getting your degree and all that kind of stuff and pushing it out of your mind, if you will. Yeah, it was, there was a lot of pushing it out of my mind and I didn't think there was, a support system there in that when, when I spoke to people about it, they didn't, I could tell the discomfort because they were living in the world where they were dealing with the rejection of the war and, and things like that. And I understood that, but I just, I, I felt isolated and somehow going into the vet where it was even more isolation and it was more profound. It's like going into the, into the heart of the beast or going into the eye of the hurricane. It, it was a place where I was forced to confront my own inner demons. And, and uh, it, it, uh, it was very, as I said earlier, it was a palliative. It was, it was very healing for me. All right. Let's, let's get into how you, how the vet becomes the place in which you're, you, you live and it becomes sort of this uh, cathartics healing uh, uh, personally aware and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, 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 do I assume that you're a sports fan in all of this? Well, actually, I was. I was a sports fan as a kid, but then I was away from the world as most people know it from 1965 when I left college and volunteered to go to Vietnam until I came home in 1969. So sports were no part of my world. And then I was so busy with school and work, it wasn't my focus. And by the time I got to the vet, which was like around late 76, 77, uh, by that time, I just didn't have any interest in sports. But working at the vet, I met, I came back into sports interest because I met guys from the Philadelphia Eagles. They were the primary contacts. And I'd meet these guys when they were coming in for practice in the afternoon or, you know, coming out at night when they were tired and talking to them because maybe I'd be there for another event. Like there might be a Flyers or a Sixers game or a rock concert going on at the building next door. So I'd be out there working and they're coming out. We talked for a while and I got to know them. Uh, One of them, Jerry Sizemore, invited me to his uh, house for a, a, a cookout. And I didn't take him seriously. I just thought it was something you might say to somebody because he was talking to somebody else about it at the time, one of another player. And he said, Tommy, you ought to come by, you know, and all that. And and I didn't go. And then when I saw him next time, he said, I thought you'd call or something for directions. And I realized he meant it. So I met these people as friends. And it happened to be that they were ball players. So 
I started getting interested in what was on the line for them and big games coming up and following things and going in to watch the games more often and uh, spending time with them. So I could, you know, I might be drinking with them after a game or something like that. And I got a whole new insight to the whole thing and it opened all kinds of worlds to me. I want to get into some of those stories in a minute, but, but this, this actually helps frame this for, for our listeners because uh, you know, you're, you're basically returning back to the, uh, to the U S and, and, and studies and all that and their first jobs and all that stuff. Uh, I think it's important to remember that the vet itself didn't open until 1971. So mm-hmm. in many respects, this is a, you know, uh, your pre-war sports experiences, right. Didn't even have this facility in right. there. Right. So this is like a whole new, literally and figuratively a whole new world, uh, a modern, uh, you know, uh, domiciled place for pro sports in Philadelphia. Now I, I got, the question is how does, how, uh, your relatives who are involved, they're involved. This is concession business, right? Is that yes. the, okay? So maybe just a little bit about how that happens. And then we can jump into, cause that's, I think it's an important part of the story to get into like, okay, how are you even, even po- possible, uh, possibly, uh, able to find a way to create your, a home space for yourself in the vet. This is the well, way in right? is through the concessions and the business that they're running. Right. Well, yeah, something, something happened in the mid sixties when, when they got the, they, they were awarded a 15 year exclusive contract for all food, drink and novelties in the stadium from 1971 to 1986 and, and rough numbers there. I mean, over 50 million people, came to Phillies and Eagles and Temple games in the stadium during that period. That's a hot contract, right? I mean, it's that must a, have been something it, yeah, to get, right? They had a lot at stake, yes. And I also, I used to worry that if I got found out, how it might impact on them. And it wouldn't have been fair, and it would have been – it could have gotten really ugly. So there was always that aspect, but I kind of just uh, – somehow I just got away with it. I just hid in plain sight. I – I became so, so ubiquitous that uh, people never thought twice about seeing me there at all times of odd hours. I had events almost every day. Yeah. So what are you doing? Like what physically, what are you you doing? Parking? Are you doing, are you taking concessions in and of the stands? Are you kind of just a jack of all trades? No, I'm, I'm I'm working in parking. When I came in there, I originally came in when they picked up the parking operation, something happened and I don't know what it was and we don't need to go there, but something happened to whoever, whoever had the contract for parking and they were summarily dis- dismissed and the commissioner of parks and recreation, Joel Ralph went to my uncle Bob, knowing that Bob had been doing parking at major events. He'd been doing parking at the army Navy game for 105,000 people since 1950. So they knew that Bob had serious parking chops and they went to him and said, can you take over the balance of this contract, which ran till the last days of 1981. It was up in 1982 at, at midnight another amazing contract oh my god yeah so they got so they got that and my cousin terry did it for a while but he had bigger plans he didn't want to just it, it was the job could be onerous i mean it was you had the weather you had the crowds you had events almost every day and i got the job and i was working there running the parking for a while and just before summer camp for the philadelphia eagles in 1970 nine, uh, a tight end came to me and he said he didn't think he and his new coach that Dick Vermeule had hired a new tight end coach. And he didn't think that he and the coach were 
getting along and he didn't think that he's his chances of making the team were diminished. So he didn't want to sign a new contract for his apartment because his two roommates were both California guys. Uh, one was Louis Giamona, Vermeil's nephew, and the other was Terry Totolo, Samoan linebacker. And he, they wouldn't be back till just before camp, but he had to sign a new lease and he didn't want to do it because he was afraid if he got cut, they'd be living there and, and he might end up in some real estate jackpot. So he said, could he store his furniture in this room he knew I had, a storage room across the hallway from where my offices were? So we moved his stuff up there and sure enough, he got cut. He called me from Westchester and said the Turk had said, come down to his office and bring his playbook. So that's a one-way trip for the playbook. And uh, he, I picked him up at Westchester. We went over to a, another Eagles house uh, in Jersey to stay there. His wife was out of town. He told us where there's a, a key under the flower pot. We drank beer till early morning when I took him to Philly for a red eye back to San Antonio. And I forgot all about the furniture. And as he's going down the ramp, getting on the plane, I yelled, hey, yo, Oz, what, do I, what about that stuff? And he said, burn it, put it in the 50-yard line. He says, I don't care. I said, I'm out of here. Well, that's the year the Pope came to town, too. And I forgot all about this furniture until the Pope came to town. And I thought I had a couple of days off because the spectrum was dark and there was nothing at the vet right then. And I heard on the radio as I was heading for the bridge to head down the shore for a couple of days down to, you know, down to Ocean City or something. Uh, I heard that the, the city had decided that the vet stadium parking lot would be open at four in the morning for people coming in for the Pope's Mass. They had no idea how many people were coming. They thought it could be well over a million people, and it was. And it was a regular work day. So they were going to open the vet's parking lot, and people could go there, park their car, take the subway to City Hall, and walk a short distance up the parkway to the Mass. But I had nobody to work because it wasn't scheduled. All the kids that worked for me, the young kids, the you know cashiers and flagmen and all that, they were high school people. And my supervisors all had regular jobs. So I had nobody. And I called in my markers at a, a bar down on South Street. I went to the bouncers and I said, get me a crew. So they put together a crew, but I didn't trust them showing up for four o'clock in the morning. This crew would be <laughs> night out. Or sober, maybe. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, or, or whatever, you know. Uh, so, so I said, look, we'll, we'll meet at Dobbs, J.C. Dobbs on South Street. I'll buy pictures of beer and sandwiches. About 10 o'clock, we'll all head down to the vet, and we're going to have a sleepover. So so we did, and that's how I got my crew down there, and they worked out well. They were they were good. I, I, I was a little nervous, but, but as we were falling asleep, and some of us were across the hallway where this furniture was. Some were on the floor of my office with sleeping bags, and Mike McNally from the electric factory said, you know, if you just cleaned up this room and rearranged the stuff you got in here, this would be the coolest apartment in the world, and that hadn't occurred to me. I'd forgotten about the furniture and, and I thought, yeah, so I did that and I moved a refrigerator in and I moved a whole kitchen set, like a, a bachelor's kitchen set, a hot plate, you know, Mr. Coffee and, you know, things like that. And uh, I, I really furnished it out pretty nicely and it was, it was really comfortable. It was very comfortable. All right, what's this? Ah, DraftKings. All right. Hey, it's that time of year again, friends. Bubble teams are making their final push for a bid while top seeds are preparing for what they hope 
is a long run, and DraftKings is giving all customers a free shot at up to $100,000 in total prizes. All you have to do is head to the DraftKings app and make your picks. Download the DraftKings app, head to their free-to-play pools page, and enter DraftKings' free $100,000 tournament seeding pool. Free-to-play pools are easy to play. All you have to do is make your picks for who you think is going to get a ticket into March's biggest tournament. And if you have the most answers correct, you win. The bank is open. Plus, don't forget about golf's fifth major this weekend taking place in Florida, where DraftKings will even have even more money up for grabs. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code GOODSEATS to get a free shot at a share of $100,000 in total prizes with DraftKings Tournament Seeding Pool. That's promo code GOODSEATS to get a free shot at $100,000 in prizes only on the DraftKings app. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. And now, back to our conversation. So when did it go from an office to your home? Like, well, how does that well, decision and transition? The, the, the night the Pope came to town, the 2nd of October, 1979. Okay, got it. the night before the Pope came to town. I think it was a Tuesday night. And he came in on Wednesday and said that mass. And, uh, you know, I was up on the fourth level of the VAT watching the, them come from the airport to heading to the mass. I've never seen so many motorcycles in an escort before. Uh, it was incredible. And I'm watching them go up Broad Street, but... Uh, I went that back downstairs and started cleaning the room and moving stuff around. It was never an office. It, it was it was a concession stand before that. It was a, a novelty stand. And it was the entire space between one of the alcoves out to the seats on one end and the alcove on the other end. So it was a, it was a large area. And I set it up so that if you looked in the door, all you'd see is boxes, cardboard boxes, which were, I had a tractor trailer full of parking tickets for the entire year and I rearranged them so it looked like a a blind you go down this corridor of boxes on both sides and at the end it looked like it was a dead end but when you got to the end you could see that there was like a double blind in the boxes if you went around there you were in the apartment and it was really it was great it was the coolest apartment for a long time I I just we had some great times there but there's something in the decision, though, to say, okay, I'm going to live here, right? It's one thing to sort of say, yeah, this could be a cool apartment. It could be neat. You know, it could be interesting. It's good space. It's unused. But it's quite another to, to, to go all in mentally and psychologically and say, you know what? I'm going to live here. And th- there's also, you know, there's not a lot of – th- there are a lot of consequences to that, right? Like where's yeah. my mail going to come from? And where, what about well, my current place of, of employee? And, or I didn't have an apartment. I, I didn't have an apartment. I'd lived in an old Victorian house right off the campus at Widener after college when I graduated in 71. <clears throat> and this is, you know, five or six years later, I'm still there. And then someone, an investor bought it and they evicted everybody in the house because they wanted to redo it and raise the rents. None of us had leases. So I was out of a place to stay. And uh, this all kind of coincided. Oh, that's interesting. So the timing, really. Okay, so this wasn't, timing, necessar- yeah, this yeah. wasn't necessarily a premeditated decision on your part. No, but- oh no, no very it was like it was accidental. If anything, I mean, if if anything is accidental, but 
yeah, I just, uh, the opportunity was there and the place was there. And, um, I, yeah, it just, uh, it just fell in place. All right. So, so let's, let's get into sort of the, I guess the day to day. So we're talking about a period of time from what, uh, late 79 or so until about, uh, what, early part of 81. So good, you know, almost well, two, the, three, the end of 81. It was about two years and three months, I guess I had that apartment. So I, tell me then what, uh, what, it, what your, what your day to day is like. So first of all, how do you get in? Like, like you have keys, like, like, how do you, and then, and then, then how do you sort of not get noticed? Uh, I had my own key. I, I didn't have to go through security. When, when nothing was going on at the vet at night, there were only two guys in the building down at security down near the Phillies offices where the press entrance was. And I didn't have to go through there. I had my own door. I had my own key and I could come around under gate D and go through a steel door and next to the steel door, there was a gigantic um, electric door where you could bring a, a big truck in. I had one large truck that I had a you know snow plow. It was like a trash truck, and I could bring that into the building. And so I had my own access. And then there, there was an outer rim and an inner rim to the vet. So my offices were there, and there was a powder room there and phones and whatnot. But on the back of that truck bay, there was another double door and I could go through that door and then lock it after I was in and walk across the short concourse to the outer rim, which was under the 300 level seats. And that's where this was. That's where the storage area that I turned into an apartment was located. That's uh, fa- yeah, that's fascinating. So how do you, what's, what is, um, give me a sort of a, a typical day, right? Because the, the vet is, uh, obviously uh, used a lot, certainly during the spring and the summer with Phillies games, obviously the the fall dominated by Eagles games and Temple football. Obviously you fill in the gaps with, at least for one of the summers that you were there, the Philadelphia Fury, some soccer dates in there, concerts mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, what's a typical day? You wake up and, and so you, this is, you're kind of, you're also working at this time too, right? This is still your yes. game as well as yes. living there. Okay. But, but the parking concession, because it was the Philadelphia sports complex, wasn't just for vet stadium. It was for the spectrum across the street and, and also for the large uh, John F. Kennedy stadium that was a U-shaped stadium where the army Navy game had been held since the forties. And that held 105,000 people and had concerts like the grateful dead for three or four days in a row. Between those was the Spectrum. The Spectrum, a lot of people don't realize the Spectrum had over 220 events a year. Ice hockey, all the Flyers games, Sixers games, NCAA playoff games, uh, the, the, the circus, the ice shows, the Disney ice shows. They had things like the Lipizzan Stallions in there. They had bagpipe competitions. They put anything they could put in there. They had rock concerts. So, a, a typical day, there, there weren't many days when I didn't have an event at one of those three locations. And many times I had multiple events. Like I had the circus in town at the same time I had the Grateful Dead. And boy, that was, that's a recurring nightmare. Aren't, aren't they synonymous? But anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were. The circus really came to town then. 
Well, so, but yeah, so for, for those who are not familiar, right, Philadelphia, that, that's the, the, and arguably still today, right? It's, it's, it's sure. a, a unique in that all those sports venues, both of old and now new, and even overlapping as they were, some were becoming old and, and, and into new, are all compact there, sort of in the uh, complex there, uh, literally mm-hmm. blocks away from each other. Yes, there was, there was always something going on. And, and after events, I had to clean the vents. For, you know, like uh, there wasn't a lot of tailgating, say, for many of those events, but for Eagles games. And, and many Phillies games, there was a lot of tailgating. So there was a lot of cleanup afterwards of major proportions, plus snow removal. I was responsible. My contract made me and not the city responsible for all snow removal. So, you know, that could, you know, I could be there for any kind of a reason at any hour. All right, I played so, on that. So this, this sounds to me then, like if I were a sports fan in Philadelphia, this sounds like a dream situation, right? I, I get to work in and around just about every major uh, sporting and otherwise event in, in Philadelphia because I'm in the complex and I'm responsible for lots of the stuff in and around those events. And then I get to live in one of those uh, facilities with, you know, in the off hours, you know, it's it's basically my my playground because I get not now I get the views and I've got the, you know, it's all the, the haunts and the, and the aura, I guess, of, of pro sports. And it's, it's almost like a, I want to call it a palace per se, but, but it, to a sports fan, it might feel like that, or at least the psychically be, become that. So is this like a dream situation or, 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 or it was not? A dream, it was a dream situation. And, okay. and uh, something happened one night, there was an event at the spectrum. And something happened, and I had to get in the building real fast to kind of put out a fire. But I couldn't get in the doors. Uh, the, the security guards, I mean, to, in defense of them, they've heard every kind of story in the world, you know. So I'm up there telling them I got to get in and see Joe Yank, the head of security, and, and they're not having it. And eventually I got in and it got straightened out. But when I was with Joe Yank, he said, he said, he's Tommy, you got to have a pass to this building. He said, get, go down and see Steve Flynn's secretary and get – you know, get a security pass. So when you come up to a gate and you're going to get in, they're going to blow you right through the door and, and not hold you up. So at the same time, I realized I didn't have one for the vet because I never needed a pass to get into the vet having my own door and key. So I went down to the people I work for, the concessionaires, my uncles, and asked about a, a you know a photo ID. And they said there was a, a high school girl came in a couple of days a week. She could make one. So I linked up with her and she's typing up at the thing and took my picture. It's going to all be sealed in plastic. And it was, it was, it was signed by the commissioner of parks and recreation, all that. And she said, what's your job title? And I'd never thought of, it. I said, I'm the director of parking for the Philadelphia sports complex. She's a high school kid. So she doesn't give it a second thought. She types it on the form, seals it in plastic. And I've got this. So I go to see this senior secretary at the spectrum and went, going through the same process but when she said, what's your job title? And I told her, she stopped typing and she looked at me and smiled. And like, she, she started laughing. She said, there's no director of parking. So I took out my pass from the vet and I gave it to her. And she looked at it and she smiled and looked at me and laughed again and typed in director of parking. So I had two passes for the two buildings, which were like Willy Wonka and the golden ticket. I could go into any Sixers game or Flyers game, you know, just kind of breeze in there. I mean, I can remember like on days after the events had started up, if I had the Phillies uh, and uh, say the Flyers or the Sixers in an afternoon game, 
I might, when, when the lots were shut down, I might be in watching the end of the Sixers game or Flyers game. And when it was over, walk out with a crowd and walk across the street and go right into the vet, get on the, on the um, elevator, go up to the stadium club, to the bar and watch the end of a Phillies game. And then maybe go uptown for dinner or not. And, you know, and just, just hang out. It's, it was, God, it was, I was single. I, I had no serious relationships at the time because I was kind of, uh, you know, difficult to, you know, plan to build a nest with. And uh, it was, it was, it was mind blowing. It was great. It's almost like you're the zealot of pro sports in Philadelphia during this time, right? I mean, you, you kind of, you're everywhere, right? <laughs> I'm I'm laughing because my my wife says that she she'll start telling a story and I'll connect it to something in my life and she says you're like Zelig. <laughs> so I I had that nickname. There was a couple. There was somebody that used to call me that. That that's really weird. Yeah, it was it was great. And I smuggled I smuggled an obscene amount of people into games. I mean, uh, I, one time I snuck Doctor J into a, a game. Now he didn't need me. And, and, but he's such a humble, unassuming guy. He couldn't, he didn't bull his way into the stadium, but he was trying to get in there with his kids. And I saw them over by the Sixers uh, entrance, which was, they had their offices in the vet and he was trying the door and his kids are looking at him and the door is locked. And I went over and I said, you're trying to get in. And apparently he was going up to the mayor's box or Len Tosa's box to watch the game with his kids an Eagles game. So I said, I said, I got a key, you know, and he saw me with a radio and a key in my hand. So he trusted me and I walked around the stadium and we got to my office door, which was locked. There were about a half a dozen or maybe 15 of my friends standing around waiting for me to show up and sneak them in. So I snuck Dr. J in with them, you know, and it was like, uh, I think I smuggled maybe at least a hundred people per game into the world series when it was there. Seriously. I mean, it was, it was, it was almost scary. It was, but, but I could do it. And I did. Yeah. That's, that's wild. Um, I, it's almost like, I mean, you said it before, like you're hiding in plain sight. It's almost yeah. like you're, you're the, the mayor of this, of these facilities in some respects. And, and I guess because you're so visible and you're constantly there because you're working all these literally just about every event there, <laughs> People, people are so familiar with you. They already, they kind of just, you're just part of the woodwork or part of the furnishings at this point. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a short story in my book called busted. And it was probably when I was living there about six months, six to eight months. And it must've been in the summertime because the Phillies were playing. The, the field was put, set up for baseball and I was up on South street having a good time. And I came home back late at night and, uh, Instead of going to the apartment, which I should have done, uh, I wandered out in the center field right behind second base because it was a full moon. All the lights were out in the building. And I laid down on the AstroTurf just behind the dirt part around second base. And I laid down there and was looking at the moon. And the next thing I knew, the, the weather must have changed a lot because there was a mist created rolling across the field. It looked like, you know, it looked like a, a haunted house movie. And a German shepherd police dog was licking my face and in the halo of light through the mist. There was a security guard standing over me with a flashlight. And I, as I'm sitting up, uh, the first words out of his mouth were, Oh, it's you. <laughs> and he started laughing. 
I mean, I thought when I first woke up, I thought, oh, God, you know, and then he, he says, oh, it's you. You know, I guess he was just happy to when he saw a body out on the field, it wasn't somebody that, you know, whatever, you know. So uh, I realized after that I was kind of home free because they were the only other people in the building was there. He said, he said, look, you can't be here. He says, I'll get fired if they find you out here. He said, go wherever it is you go. And he must have known that I was going off to someplace where I disappeared from time to time. He said, go wherever it is you go and sleep it off. And I got up and I walked away. The German shepherd tried to follow me because I always gave it dog bones every time I saw it. So he's following me off the field. The guy calls his dog back and they go their way and I go mine. But uh, I knew after that that there weren't many people that were going to find me at odd hours and turn me in. How do you how do you keep that going then? Uh, because it still is a deception game and it's still, I'm guessing, illegal. And, and you could yeah. get found out at any moment, kind of really. But how do you yeah. how do you keep that sort of deception going that that kind of secret i don't know i i mean i i uh we we always referred to the 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 apartment we referred to it as the secret apartment so if somebody was making reference they'd say the such and such the secret apartment which is kind of like you know if somebody said the name alone should have piqued interest in certain circles if they ever heard it but somehow i just didn't get caught i mean i it wasn't anything really clever I did. In fact, I was careless at times. There were things I wouldn't permit. I never allowed anybody to ever take a photograph in there when I had people in. And this was in an era before people had, you know, cell phones with the cameras on them. So on that, I really shut that down. And most of the people that ever knew about it, and, and I, an incredible amount of people knew about this, but they thought I was benign. And they just, uh, you know, they, they, they weren't people that would hurt me. There were people that I knew of that if they got a hold of this, they would have run right, they would have run it up the flagpole and it would have been ugly, as I said earlier. Um, what's it like uh, 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 in terms of, um, uh, yeah, is, <clears throat> does it feel like it's haunted? Do you fear for your safety? Uh, is it cold? Is it too warm? Uh, you know, yeah. what's, what's, what are the, living conditions like once you've sort of spruced it up and, and, and you're living there, is it, is it, is it a, is it a challenge or is it, is it just natural or is it, I mean, you know, you're not bringing in air conditioning units, for example, during the summer. Well, I didn't need them. Uh, the, the, the room was really cool in the summer just because of the nature of it. So it was cool in the summer. And then there were a lot of pipes. This is like an industrial ceiling, you know, it's, it's all open, but there were a lot of pipes and things running through there that were, had heat in them a year round. So in the winter, there was some heat in there, but I brought my own heaters in. I had an artificial fireplace. I had uh, an AstroTurf covering of the whole area. My whole living area was very comfortable that way. And um, I just, I, you know, I mean. Rain, I was, snow, none of that bothered you either? Uh, no. No. Impressive heat. No, that's interesting. I, no, no, it's, it was comfortable year round, one way or the other. It was cool in the summer and it, I could keep it warm enough in the winter that I was very comfortable. Now, now what about the sports and the teams specifically, right? So you're, you're doing, you're mostly working these events and stuff. So it's not like you've got a lot of free time to kind of take in a game or two, or, or maybe you do on your, do you have, I'm assuming you have off days or vacation days and stuff. And maybe you choose to, I'm just curious as to what your, uh, memories and or exposure to the actual games themselves. And maybe were there teams that were certainly, you know, that were better or more interesting and players or, and situations more than others. Like were the Eagles more mm-hmm. 
you know, whatever than Phillies or the Fury. Yeah, Do you remember anything about them? We love to obsess about that. The couple well, of years of them. Here, here, here's a. I, this is a short story in the in the book. Uh, there was a twilight doubleheader in June of 1980 that had a rain delay. So um, probably around 11:30, I was watching some of the game, but it was really it was it was stopped again, and people were milling around the hallways. A lot of people were leaving because it was so late, <clears throat> and I I uh, I went 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 into my apartment and I read for a while and I turned in and I woke up. I thought I heard some noises. So I, I went outside in my bathroom with my shower shoes on and a cup of coffee. And I'm standing there watching the game. And there were probably the game ended up around three o'clock in the morning. And I'm standing there. And I thought this was really a Philly thing. Uh, people that saw me didn't ask me why I was wearing a bathrobe and shower shoes at three <laughs> in the morning. They wanted to know where I got a hot cup of coffee because the concession stands had closed almost five hours earlier. <laughs> All they were, where, where'd you get the coffee, man? Hey, where'd you get the coffee? That does sound like a Philly thing, but, but yeah, in a good it, way. Yeah, yeah, they had their priorities right. Um, uh, how about uh, any of the, the teams or the players and stuff? Like, do the Eagles stand out more so than the Phillies? Uh, do you remember the Fury, uh, Temple oh. football games, anything you, you looked forward to or maybe didn't as much as part of that uh, you know, onslaught of events that never seemed probably to end. Yeah. Well, a lot of, a lot, I mean, a lot of the things that happened were, you know, I would have a vicarious uh, enjoyment through friends. Like uh, I had a friend of mine that went to Syracuse and Syracuse was playing temple. So I, you know, called him up and said, Hey, why don't you come down Saturday and, you know, have a couple of hot dogs and beers and watch temple and Syracuse play. That's the year that Jim Morris was with uh, Syracuse who ended up being the MVP when he went with the giants and they won the Super Bowl. So, you know, stuff like that. I mean, that, that, that was great. And uh, different games and events, but my contact was more, my strongest connections were with Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, the Phillies were in a different world. You know, they were usually off with their, you know, their, attorneys and friends and stuff like that. I, I didn't see them socially as much. I got to know Tug McGraw after Tug had been, you know, playing down there. I, I got to know him years later and uh, I knew who ball players were and stuff like that, but the Phillies, but, but the Eagles were, they were my buddies. I mean, they were the guys I really, you know, connected with and, and, and they were good friends to me. I had some great times with them. Speaking, speaking of the Eagles, did you ever, um, that infamous uh, uh, jail uh, that was down uh, there no, in the that, somewhere, did you ever sort of know no, about that, or was that around your time? Uh, no, that's way later. Way later, uh, okay. That was, that was closer. Santa and that, that stuff. That, that, that was in the 90s, and I was out of there by, you know, by oh, yeah. 19, at the end of 1981, uh, you know, I had no, I had no job. There was no future. They, they weren't going to bring me into the inside operation. And, uh, you know, parking was done and they kind of thanked me and I was on my way and I was going to collect unemployment and figure what's the next move. And a, a former Philadelphia Eagle that I knew real well, Billy Bradley, uh, who played there in the seventies. Sure. He's a kicker, right? He was a punter and he, he also returned punts and he was a strong safety and he had the NFL record for most interceptions in the league two years in a row. He still has the, record at the University of Texas for most interceptions in a game four and uh, also the longest punt at the University of Texas. I think it's 74 yards from the line of scrimmage, 
which is one heck of a punt. But Billy, Billy showed up in Philly to pick up some furniture he had in storage, and he was retired from the game then. And um, we were having a couple of beers down on Two Street at Walt's Crabs with another friend. And, um, you know, he said, why don't you come back to Texas with me? It was middle of February. And I was giving him all kinds of lame excuses, and he wasn't buying it. And he said, I'll be outside your house at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. He says, when I beat my horn, if you don't come out, I'm coming in and dragging you out. So I was kidding him. I said, oh, you're going to kidnap me and take me to Texas. He goes, yeah. He said, you'll have the time of your life. And he was there, and I jumped in the car. And uh, Billy doesn't travel in a straight line, so it took us almost a week to get to Texas. But when we left Philly, it was in the teens, and it was a miserable cold day. And when we pulled into Austin a week later, it was like 96 degrees and the parks were full of people playing ball and throwing Frisbees and all that kind of stuff. And I had a great time down there. I stayed till uh, just before Christmas when I came back to see my family. Tell me um, how you uh, decide or maybe it was decided that you were going to move on from the apartment. Obviously the contract is coming up, uh, you know, it's not going to be renewed. You're, you're, you're going to lose your job and stuff. I'm also curious too, as to what you're learning about yourself during this period of time, because you mentioned it earlier. Um, and the irony is not lost on me, right? You're a vet in the vet. Yeah. Um, what, what uh, give me a sense of how that I, I, I'm imagining that there's just an immense amount of solitude in between all this beehive of events and yeah. in this big cavernous place, um, you know, uh, that there's a, a bunch of opportunities for introspection, quiet, and, um, you know, and, and the awesomeness of this, you know, this uh, uh, facility that you're, you're, you're living in. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember because it's, 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 uh, it's 40 some years ago now or 40. Yeah. You know, and I don't know that we knew that the vet contract wouldn't be renewed. It came up to another competitive bid. And the people I worked for, I wasn't part of the bid. Uh, the management was taking care of that. And they bid something close to what we had before, which was around 14.9% of the, of the parking fee. So the fee at that time was $2. So they were making just under 30 cents per car. And the people that bid against us, they bid around 10%, like 10.5% cents on the dollar so they were they were offering to do this for less than we were and and uh, volume had a lot to do with it but that cut made a big difference it was it was you know a bad winter with a lot of snow could destroy your budget so uh they got the contract and i don't know that we knew this until probably sometime around november or december when that was finalized what happened after they came in within six months, the price of parking went from $2 to $3. So they were making where we were making 28, 29 cents, whatever it was, they were making like 33 or 34 cents a car. They were actually making more money than we were. And I don't know and don't even want to speculate whether they knew something we didn't know, but they bid a, they bid a, their bid was unsustainable without the price going up to $3. And that happened. It all fell in, you know, suddenly we're out of here. We're done. You know, we lost the bid. And so it all came kind of on fast. And I wasn't looking to the future that much back then. I was, 
you know, just kind of taking it day by day. So, you know, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do next until Billy showed up and kind of rescued me. And, and what, and what then happened in, in the years after all of that. Right. So I, I'm just trying oh. to put, square this particular moment well, of your life into context as to what came thereafter. Because the, great, the greatest thing ever, the great, the greatest yeah. thing ever happened to me. Because the year with Billy was kind of like like detox. That was like a quiet year, and you know a, a lot of great things, and spending time out on the lakes of Te- you know, tr- sailing in Texas out on the Lake Travis and all that. And then when I came back, uh, I ended up working for my cousin Terry again at a business he had down the seashore in the summer. I didn't foresee this. He said you know, you want to help me, you know, I, I could use some help setting up. So I was down there, down the shore with him. And that summer, I met, I met the girl of my dreams, I met a woman that changed my life. And, and, and uh, I, I got into real estate, which is a, a something that you can get into later in life, uh, without much of a, a, you know, a background for it. And I did well in real estate and, and became, you know, much more adult in my life. And, and eventually I got married and, and have five step kids. They're great kids and a wonderful life. I mean, you know, I just retired from that recently, but, but also through this woman, she always believed in me. And I always had this book about Vietnam. I wanted to write and I did write it and it came out in 2015 and it's been critically acclaimed. It's, 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 it's good. I'm proud of it. I, you know, and uh, I wrote the book about Vietnam that I, needed to write my soul and it's it's you know and then i've wrote this other book you know the secret apartment i this wasn't i didn't intend to write a book i was writing short stories for friends when the pandemic started a year ago nobody knew what we were going to go through people were isolating there were no cars on the road and my grandfather died in the pandemic in 1918 uh, and, and left my, my grandmother with two small kids, my father and his younger brother. So we didn't know what was happening. And I remember posting something on Facebook about watch this space, you know, before the end of March, I will start posting stories for you to hopefully cheer you up. And I started writing these stories on the last day of March and they were really well received. They're basic. They're the stories in the book. And someone said after a while, they said, you know, you've got over 30,000 words here. You're, you've got a book. So I started adding to it and remembering things. I didn't make anything up. I didn't make anything up in my book about Vietnam, as fanciful as that is. That really happened exactly the way I portray it. And the same thing with The Secret Apartment. I'm not good at making things up, but I do have a good memory. And life has given me, I didn't even think about it until I put them all together. Like, this is really crazy. I mean, they should have thrown a net over me and I somehow just danced through the whole thing. And, uh, you know, when I put the, when I put the book out, one of the local uh, radio people got a hold of it in sports radio within days of it coming out and he read it. And I think he really liked, he loved, it was Angelo Cataldi and he loved the larceny of it. And he loved the fact that I got away without getting caught and he vetted the book. He, he contacted people. He had, he had sources that I wouldn't have. And he got a hold of some people and they said, oh, yeah, I know about this. And so when he realized it was real, he asked me to be on his show. And three days later, 
I sold more books in one day of The Secret Apartment than I sold of many buku magics about living with the Montagnards in, in almost five and a half years. And it's it's really, you know, I'm getting some beautiful connections from it. And I'm, I'm hearing from old friends and stuff like that. It's, it's really been great. It's been magnificent well look if there's if there's any book or or testament if you will to the soul of this you know i, I look from the outsider's perspective I, a not seemingly kind of a special you know a, a multi-purpose stadium right this is an era mm-hmm. of you know the the riverfront stadiums and the three river stadiums and and you know they were all kind of they were i don't think the vet was as cookie cutter as those were right but but the, the, if there was anything you know aside from the sports teams and some of the greater moments um, of a soul of this this facility, right? I I think mm-hmm. your spell there for almost you know or two and a half years or so, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of brings some uh, unique life to it because you, you're somebody who's truly living and breathing uh, uh, the the stadium in its life during the during the day and during the night and, and everything in between. Uh, it's fascinating and and so incredibly unique. Um, I, I you wonder I you know if I'm and we we have some amazing and and. Uh, surprising uh, listeners uh, in this four-year journey that we've done for this show. Uh-huh. Um, this, you know, if I'm if I'm sitting in Hollywood and trying to ideate an idea for the new streaming service out there that's launching, uh, this going to be every day. This to me seems like an amazing backdrop to do uh, if it's a sitcom or or a drama or some kind of combination thereof, right? Because the, the the era, the time, the teams. Your situation. I mean, I, you know, uh, you could. Uh, there's some great, uh, great sort of background and stories, both the the actual stories that you tell, and you know, some that could be mm-hmm. embellished and or augmented by that. I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I'm I don't have that power, that magic power to sort of uh, create a Hollywood uh, production out of this, but I can imagine somebody thinking such. Yeah, you know, I have a I have a distant relative that lives in Chicago, and and the story in the family always was that there were three brothers. What I don't know is if they were first-generation Irish or whether they born here or whether they came over together. But they were working on the boats out of Chicago. And one of the brothers drowned. And the other two brothers swore that they would never go out on the boats again. One brought his family to Philadelphia where they had a connection. And the other stayed out there and raised his family. And the other family that stayed out there is Bill Murray. I mean, I've never met him. He doesn't know I exist. And, you know, and I always I always kind of laughed when I ever watched Caddyshack where he was singing the Battle of the Green Berets and, you know, skulking around with that boonie hat on. If he knew that he had a relative that had been running a border camp back at that time. Wow, that's that's. Yeah. That's it's, pretty amazing. It's wow. pretty, it's, it's all. I yeah. I, yeah. I play with my lips sometime when I realize what, yeah, the dynamics of this. All right. Here, here's my last question. This has been a tremendous conversation, Tom. I appreciate your taking time for it for sure. Oh, thank you. I'm and I look forward to getting it in front of our audience for sure. Um, and I guess this is sort of a wistful question. Um, the, uh, the vet closed for good in 2003, I think it was September, late September, 2003, and it was demolished. Uh, in March of 2004. Um, yes. I wonder if you were there for it or were drawn to see it or you avoided or where were you and did you care or or not uh, when it was, if you will, yeah. saying its last goodbye? Yeah, I yeah, I had strong emotions and I didn't know whether I would be, want to go down there or not. I planned on going down there 
And then at the last minute, I didn't go down there. I just couldn't bring myself to be there and see it. Uh, <clears throat> um, th- there was a, the vet was alive to me at one point in my life. And the vet was a healing place. And somehow I couldn't go down there and just stand and watch it explode and crumble. It, it, I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I was at a pretty good place in my own life at that time. And, and as I said, I'd fallen in love with a woman that has made all my dreams come true. And people that care about me are really happy about this relationship. And it was ver- that was healing. That was the final, you know, somehow the vet and then the year with Billy Bradley, it just kind of teed that whole thing up. So I was ready to drive that ball as far as I could. And it just worked out beautifully. It's yeah. Well, it's an amazing journey, obviously impossible to believe. And um, I think uh, it's, it, it, you know, on a different, different levels, obviously on a personal level, for sure, for yourself. But, you know, look, I think a lot of people, you know, in Philly and just in sports generally remember the vet, right? Because they went, they yeah. saw their first games there or whatever, season ticket, whatever it was, right? It's part of the fabric. It's part of the culture. It's part of the uh, the essence of, of Philadelphia, right? It's part of uh, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're on to something. Tim, what really makes me happy with this, when people come up to me or, you know, when I make a connection with people and they're talking about the book and all that, they so many people come up with their own stories of, of some positive experience there. And they share this with me and I end up sitting there and not talking, but just listening to them and realizing I look at their faces and they're animated and they, um, Angelo Cataldi's review on Amazon, the first one, he said, it brings the vet back to life again. And somehow the book and the story and my experience has brought the stadium back to life for so many people that had such incredible experiences there. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was criticized in a lot of ways and it was called a dump at the end and all that kind of stuff, but, but it was our dump. It was our place. It was our thing and it existed in time. And I was just happy and gifted to have been a part of it in a really unusual way. All right, a surprisingly uh, interesting. Well, I, I, I knew it was going to be interesting. It was just it's, the whole story is just is mind blowing. Uh, and uh, geez, I don't know if I would have done it. I, you know, obviously I didn't grow up in Philly, uh, but I don't know in the New York area where I grew up. I, would I have taken the chance and lived in an apartment uh, under similar circumstances? Maybe during the late seventies when my beloved Cosmos were uh, running around Giant Stadium. I don't know. Um, they probably kicked me out, but I. Who knows? It could have been very interesting. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating story, and more of it uh, can be found in uh, the book, obviously. It's called The Secret Apartment, uh, a surreal memoir, yeah, for sure. Uh, it is self-published by uh, our pal Tom Garvey. Uh, you can find it uh, wherever uh, books uh, generally are found. Amazon is obviously a good place. Uh, you can get it both in paperback and or digital forms there. I know that for a fact. Uh, you can also go to Amazon via our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. That's a convenient way to uh, find and purchase the book. We get a couple of shekels of referral love when you do that, and we greatly appreciate that. It helps keep our uh, our lights on, a little heat going during the winter months uh, here in our little uh, bunker. And uh, we uh, 
encourage you to search up this episode. That's 205 number uh, episode uh, with Tom Garvey, and you'll see uh, the uh, link conveniently there, as well as links to all of the episodes that we have published uh, to date, as well as to come, uh, as well as all a bunch of other goodies at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find our social media links there. We're at, uh, on, uh, let's see, Instagram, we're at goodseatsstillavailable. Uh, there is a page devoted to us on uh, Facebook. Just search us up there. And uh, on Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can also send us email from the site or directly. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Thank you for your uh, electronic cards and letters. Keep them coming. Thank you. We, uh, we're we way overdue in responding to, uh, to a lot of notes. So hang in there. Uh, we do read each and every one of them. And uh, we will promise to get uh, to all of them. Uh, in in due time, and we appreciate your patience in that. Uh, let's see. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. Uh, there's a link to there on the website at goodseatsavailable.com. Just uh, find it and uh, give us your name and your email address, and away you go. Uh, you'll be on the list for our updates uh, each and every week. Our thanks, of course, to our pal Jerry Payne uh, this week uh, down in Atlanta. Well, he's always in Atlanta uh, each week, I think, as far as I know. Uh, all the uh, good uh, knob twiddling and uh, editing goodness. Uh, we can't do this show without him, of course. And we thank him kindly for his services once again this week. Uh, we also thank you kindly for not only listening, but supporting the show, following us on social media, sending us email, uh, buying stuff from our website, whatever it is. We appreciate it uh, to no end. And uh, thanks uh, again for letting us go down memory lane this week down to uh, Philadelphia uh, and the uh, vet. A fascinating story. Take care until next week. We'll see you. Uh, take care. Bye.